Mark, the eighth chapter. One church I served in North Carolina welcomed uh, Sherry Michelle and my family with a covered dish dinner one evening. And uh, we, uh, we arrived there, and it was a smaller church than where I had served. I went back to seminary to do uh, some additional work uh, in school. And uh, I, I really wasn't expecting much, to be quite honest with you. But when I showed up, there was the largest display of goods and groceries that you've ever seen in your life in any church. And I was taken aback for a moment. One of my younger deacons said, came up to me, uh, Stacy Overman, and he said, look, I, I've grown up here all my life, and uh, I've been in this church all my life, and you need to understand, two things were not going to be around here, and both of them are hungry. <laughs> and you know, he was entirely correct. He really was. Uh, do you know, that is the promise that Jesus Christ makes to his people. Something you're not going to be around him, and that happens to be hungry. Uh, in fact, there's coming a day when all want and all lack will be completely eliminated. And only a God like him makes these kinds of promises. Now, there are many kinds of hunger. In fact, uh, the scripture refers to these, and we talk about these quite often. They're, and they oftentimes become the occasion for serious compromise of morals and standards and of what we know is right and, and wrong. Uh, for example, uh, the hunger for actual food uh, could lead to all sorts of difficulties and challenges. There is a hunger for affirmation that may cause people to sit down and eat a banquet of hypersensitivity and being too touchy. There's a hunger for love, and those hungry for love oftentimes bounce from one romance to another and one relationship to another, believing that just another romance and just another relationship will fill the soul. There's a hunger for peace, and oftentimes if people don't turn to Christ, they'll turn to drugs. They'll abuse alcohol. They'll abuse food. There is a hunger for purpose, and because of that, some pursue athletic dreams with too much intensity, neglecting all the other priorities of life. Some become intellectual and so cognitive and cerebral that it's hard for them to relate. There can be a hunger for money, which leads to workaholism or overwork, compromising principles, fraud, and even deceit at times. There's a hunger for fame, which can cause people to sit down at a banquet of selfishness and narcissism. There is a hunger sometimes for the old days and going back in time, and so some will sit down to a banquet of grumbling and complaining and objecting to everything new. There can be a hunger for beauty, which can lead to unnecessary surgery and an obsession with appearance and externals and fashion and style. There's a hunger for many for forgiveness, and without turning to Christ, they can sit and at a banquet of overreaction to disapproval or correction or disagreement. Zhang Chen was is a Chinese man that went to a Chinese restaurant in China, and he sat down and ordered a salad, and when it appeared, there was a cockroach in it. And he complained to his waitress, and she said, well, that's rather common here. He said, well, if it's so common, you eat the cockroach. And she did. Well, he got up and went and paid for his meal because he lost his appetite after all of that. Well, like the waitress and unlike Zhang, many fill themselves with nauseating dishes for scandalous prices to fill their hunger. 
Jesus, in Mark chapter 8, deals with a bunch of hungry people. Now, he's done that earlier in Mark chapter 6 in the one miracle recorded in all four Gospels, and that is the feeding of the 5,000. This is the feeding of the 4,000, and it appears in two Gospels. And so God is not embarrassed in His Word to present to the world His Son who feeds the hungry, and He presents Him that way six times in the Scripture. And that doesn't include all of the other feeding miracles that are in the Old Testament. God places the miracle up front, does not hide or obfuscate it. He's not embarrassed by it, but he expects the world to deal with it. That he is a miracle-working God, and he did that through his Son. And in John chapter 8, Jesus did feed the 4,000, and he demonstrated that when he is in charge, he satisfies legitimate hungers. Let's begin reading in chapter 8. And verse number 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called His disciples to Him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they've now continued with Me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their houses, they will faint on the way. For some of them have come from afar. Then His disciples answered Him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, well, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and he blessed them. And he set them also before them. So they ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Jesus Christ is able to satisfy every legitimate hunger the human race faces. Well, what hungers does he fill? Well, there are several that arise from the text here. And one is, Jesus satisfies our hunger for sympathy. The world cries out, and perhaps you do today, is there anyone who cares? Does anyone care at all? I read about a man who smoked, despite the fact that his wife had asthma. She complained for decades about his smoking habit. But then they took the pet in one day with some breathing problems, and the veterinarian told the husband, you'll have to quit smoking, you're causing respiratory problems in your pet, and then he gave up smoking. Does anybody care? There was one distraught 26-year-old woman in Seattle who was so distraught, she posed on the bridge on Interstate No. 5 uh, during rush hour to jump. And it so frustrated motorists, they got out of their car and urged her to jump. And she did, 160 feet down. John, Mark chapter 8, verse 2. Jesus said, I have compassion on the multitude. They've continued with me three days in a revival meeting, in a Bible conference. That's what Jesus was doing with them, teaching them. And they have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from 
afar. Jesus felt the need of the multitudes. It's tough enough to feel the need of another person. But Jesus Christ's capacity for compassion was so large, so eternal, just as big as His heavenly Father, that He felt compassion on the entire multitude. The word compassion is a word that originally meant bowels, and it meant that Jesus had a gut-level reaction to their plight, and He had compassion on them. He wasn't frustrated with them. He wasn't impatient with them. He was compassionate. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is the master chef of sympathy in this world, and there's no one like him. You may, not, you may feel like no one else in the world cares that you're hungry for something, but Jesus Christ does, and he feels your hunger as if he were suffering it himself. And he's got a marvelous plan, and he's got a marvelous intention of satisfying that hunger. Jesus Christ satisfies our hunger for sympathy. But then, that's not all. Jesus Christ also satisfies our hunger for stability. There's some that are vexed and worried, maybe here and certainly in our world, and they cry out for a world without hunger, starvation, and malnourishment. Jesus Christ knows that situation in verse number 8. They've continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And then he knows physically what they would endure if he were to send them away without feeding them first. If I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Jesus was aware, Jesus was aware that they would grow weary and collapse after being with him for three days. That means they left a populated region on a journey of three days. And so they were away from the store of supply that they needed them. And so he fed them and stabilized their health and their strength. Jesus Christ is not only the master chef of sympathy, he's the master chef of stability. And let me make one thing perfectly clear. The hope for our world of ridding its ills and problems and persistent difficulties is to turn to Jesus Christ and come under his lordship and his rule. Historically, we can prove that. I would encourage you to check several authors who've actually done the research and the work on this point. Authors such as Rodney Stark and those that run the catalog of philanthropy.com and then Arthur Brooks. These, indeed, have gone a long ways to proving the point I'm just about to make, and that is the nations that have an adequate food supply for the population are those nations that are historically identified with the Christian faith. It makes entirely good sense. And the most, and the most generous nations, and even in our own country, the most generous states happen to be those that are most identified with the Christian faith. For example... The wealthiest state in the nation is Connecticut, but it's number 44 in generosity. The poorest state in the nation is Mississippi, but it's number one in generosity as a percentage of income. When Christ comes into a life, he gives those moral and those emotional and those vocational resources to elevate a people. Now listen, don't don't misunderstand me here. There's not a person here who would claim that on their own, by their own virtue and righteousness, that they are generous or that they're kind or that they're well-fed. They would give glory to God and Jesus Christ because that is what Jesus himself does. If you want a world where there's no more hunger or starvation, bring it to Jesus Christ and he will radically transform it. That is true, by the way, in those nations on the continent of Africa. 
and uh, Latin America and Asia where Christian missionaries had a biblically defined message and delivered the world. Everything from the infrastructure to the food supply is far more superior to those nations on those continents that rejected the gospel or never had an opportunity for it. So if you want a world where there's no more hunger, where that is eliminated, we need to come to Christ and follow Him. And here's what Jesus Christ does amongst the people. What Jesus Christ does is that He creates among them a preview of the future He is going to bring. In Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9, there's the marriage supper of the Lamb where Christ will Himself gird Himself and serve us with sweet manna all around, as the hymn says. Jesus has a wedding celebration to celebrate with His own people, the church, His bride, the church. And He's going to throw a very large celebration and feast for His people one day, and His people will be able to enjoy that as He serves them all around. He recreates that in the Lord's Supper as we celebrate communion when we take it. And then He recreates that in every fellowship meal that we enjoy with one another. We do more than meet it, eat it, and beat it. We're actually exalting the Lord in that time and previewing what Jesus Christ will perform one day. And that's what He has given us. Well, Jesus satisfies our hunger for sympathy and stability, but Jesus also satisfies our hunger for reliability. The world cries out, and perhaps you do as well, for someone who will keep their word, for someone who will make promises and come through with them. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 4. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? The word wilderness calls to mind the children of Israel as they left Egypt and were headed to the promised land. In Exodus 16, they faced a similar situation. They grumbled and cried for the leeks and onions and garlic of Egypt. And they began to doubt. And they came to Moses and confronted him and said, Why did you bring this? Bring us into this wilderness to starve us. It would have been better had we stayed in Egypt. And Moses cried out to God, and God promised quail and manna. And for 40 years in the wilderness, the children of Israel did suffer at times because of their own sin. Many of them died. But there's not a single record that any child, Hebrew child, in the nation of Israel ever died because of starvation or dehydration in 40 years. Now, there were at least 600,000 men that left Israel. You add to that a wife and a child or two, and you've got at least 2 million people traveling through the wilderness, headed to the promised land over a period of 40 years. Now, let me ask you this. How many gallons of water does a person need on average every day? At least a gallon a day, do they not? How many calories a day do they need? 1,500, 2,500? I'm satisfied with 3,500. But, um, <laughs> but how many calories do they need a day? Ladies and gentlemen, every day, God gave them in the desert 2 million gallons of water and enough calories to keep them alive for 40 years. And they made it. They made it through. And not a single record of anyone dying of starvation, malnutrition, or the diseases associated with it, or dehydration, or those things associated with that. So the disciples 
are here in the wilderness with these 4,000, probably with women and children, many, many more. And they recognize how stark and difficult it is. But the one to whom they come with this need is the one who met Israel's need in Exodus 16. God Himself, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the master chef of reliability. He makes promises and He keeps them. And He acts in such a way and answers prayer in such a way and satisfies needs in such a way that it increases and booths the faith of those who will trust and follow Him. And that kind of act on His part merits and deserves the faith of those who don't believe yet. What a marvelous Savior He is. Now look at verse number 7. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, He also set them before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. The word basket here means large basket, as it's translated in the New King James Version text. But I want you to understand just how large this basket was. This is the same kind of basket that Paul was let down in over the walls when he was trying to escape his enemies in Damascus who wanted to murder him. They were large enough to hold a man, and they took up seven basketfuls whenever... Jesus fed the 5,000. They took up 12 small basketfuls, one enough for every tribe in Israel. Here they take up seven basketfuls, one enough for the seven nations of the Canaanites, representing all the Gentiles of the world. Jesus Christ is adequate for Jew and Gentile. Jesus Christ is adequate for the entire world, and He can take care of every need. He fulfills His Word and comes through every time. Have you seen that in your life? I have mine. God called me from quite a uh, prestigious and uh, well-funded pastorate, my first pastorate in South Carolina, to go on and do doctoral work in North Carolina. And I couldn't give as much energy and time to the pastorate in my second pastorate while in school that I did my first. So I needed a smaller church. And I went to a smaller church that was about the third the size of the church I pastored. And I didn't stay that way. Well, it took off on me. It really scared the daylights out of me. But in any case, it was, uh, it was a wonderful five years there, but it was much smaller. And I believe our budget was um, probably one-fourth of what it had been in South Carolina. I took at least a $13,000 a year cut. And about the time Sherry, Michelle, and I decided the Lord was directing us to this church, she announced our second child was on the way. And then my expenses were going to go up for school and travel. I was 25 miles away from the seminary. And I want to tell you something, folks. During that time, whatever debt we had, we erased, paid all of our bills on time, even though one time to start a new semester, somehow, some way, six $100 bills had to show up in my post office box just in time. Whenever you do the will of God, God comes through if you'll trust Him. If it's His will, it is His bill. He promised and He came through. So Jesus satisfies our hunger for reliability. Well, He satisfies it for stability and satisfies it for sympathy. But there's a fourth hunger that He satisfies. Jesus satisfies our hunger for purity. 
And that's precisely what he does in this text. And it might be a little obscure by some of the details uh, here as the story continues from verse 13 on to verse 21. But don't, don't let that happen. But before we look at that, let me tell you about a pastor I know of who had a man in his church that ran a flower shop. And next to the flower shop was a massage parlor not supported by your tithes and offerings, if you know what I mean. And during the day, he would see solicitous women walk in and out of this massage parlor and too many men. And one day, one of the prostitutes from that massage parlor came into his flower shop and said, may I use your phone? Ours isn't working. He said, sure, go ahead and use it. He went back to his work, but he couldn't, he couldn't help but to look up on occasion and stare at this prostitute. And he would get embarrassed and look back down at his flowers. And she finished her call, and she looked up at him and said, yes, I'm a prostitute. What about it? And he said, well, my church loves prostitutes. Why don't you come Sunday? Well, Robin couldn't come the next Sunday, but she came the one after. And the pastor preached a simple message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as the hope for sinners. And her heart broke during the message. And he extended an invitation, like we'll do today, and invited those who wanted to receive Christ to come. And Robin came. And Robin was matched up with this pastor's wife, with the pastor's wife. And the pastor's wife opened up the good news of Christ in the Bible and shared the good news about how God loves sinners and how Jesus paid the death penalty for them and how God announced to the world He accepted the cross by raising Him from the dead and anyone who will be humble and repent and trust Christ alone can be saved. And she turned to Christ sitting there on the front pew with the pastor's wife showing her how to come to Christ. And then the pastor's wife reached around and hugged her, and Robin embraced her, and the pastor thought just at that moment, at this moment, both of those women, even though they're wildly different from one another, the pastor's wife, a clear complexion, the prostitute, acne, that hadn't been treated, the pastor's wife with stylish hair, the prostitute matted, stringy, the pastor's wife dressed nicely and decently, prostitute mismatched clothes. The pastor's wife with a fine posture as a result of living a clean life, the prostitute with shoulders slumped over from shame. But when they hugged each other after that woman called on the Lord to save her, he said, it dawned on me, both of those women, both of those women are equally pure in the sight of God. And I want to tell you, you come to Jesus Christ today, no matter who you are, where you've been, God will make you pure before Himself and cleanse you and make you not only as pure as that pastor's wife, God can make you just as pure as His Son and give you that standing. Oh, you don't become Jesus. You don't become the Son of God, but you don't have to. And I want to say to you, friend, there is no substitute for Jesus Christ. Man could not run as fast as the cheetah, so he built an automobile, and now he drives at blinding speed. Man could not fly like the eagle. And so he built the airplane and flies at supersonic sound. Man cannot swim for long underneath the level of water, so he built a submarine, and now he does in this day. Man cannot see in the night sky 
like the cat, and so he's built artificial life. We have found, we have found substitutes for travel and substitutes for all sorts of things, but there'll never be a substitute for Jesus Christ. Only Christ can cleanse, and he's willing to do it today. And our lost, sin-ridden, hell-bound condition, the only hope is Jesus Christ. Look, I knew him for a month. When I met Jesus when I was 16, and I want to make it abundantly clear to you, after knowing him for a little while, I didn't want a substitute. How about you? Christ is Lord. He satisfies the need for purity with those who will get honest with him. Now, this is what Jesus performs here in this text. This is what he performs here in this text. He is showing by this miracle what can take place in hearts and lives. The Pharisees demand a sign. And I'm wondering, well, just how many more do you need? He just fed 4,000 people. And Jesus says, I'll not give a sign at all to this bunch. I've given enough. And so you have to understand, Jesus Christ is not now groveling before you, asking you to come to him out of a sense of his own personal need. He's not willing to compromise his standards or his terms just to get you. He won't do it. Always marvelously compassionate. But if you're going to come to Christ, you've got to come on His terms and His terms alone. And that is, you humble yourself and admit, I'm as guilty as a prostitute. You may not have committed those sins. You may think your sins are so little. Well, if they're so little, give them up. Why'd you do them? Because our hearts are wicked and deceitful before God. You've got to admit, I'm just as wicked and sinful, and perhaps with her life circumstances, I would have lived the same way as pimp or prostitute. You've got to admit, I am that guilty. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And so you've got to admit, your virtue and righteousness is a joke. It's non-existent. And the only hope is to exchange my sin for Jesus' righteousness as He gives it to me, and He's willing to because He went to the cross and was raised from the dead, and He'll do it simply by faith. You come before God and say, God, I have no righteousness. He says, do you have faith? Yes, I'll take that as a substitute. I'll take faith even though you have no righteousness because my Son certainly does. Let me ask you a few questions. Are you hungry? Are you willing to admit that you're hungry because you fed on a poor diet of your own making or one that the world offered you? You've been eating cockroaches too long. Have you refused to feast at the Lord's banquet and feed on what He's promised to give you? Do you trust the Lord enough to place your hope in Christ and His cross and resurrection alone? And do you believe that if you do that, God will reserve for you a place at the banquet table, an honorable place, a glorious place, and a place given to you by grace. If your answer to these questions is yes, there is hope for you. He will save. He will cleanse. I was meeting for lunch with some friends one day, and I had to stop somewhere and ask for directions to the restaurant. Now, that shocks you because I'm a man. I don't need directions or maps. But on this particular day, I did. (laughs) And that's what we're going to ask you to do today. If you're willing to trust Christ alone in humility, here's what we're going to do. 
We're going to sing a song, and as we do, we'll have staff standing here in the front. And we want to invite you to come ask for directions, to come meet one of them and say, I need directions to Christ. Will you do that? Would you quickly stand with me, please, and let's pray together. Lord, we want to praise you for your promise where you say, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. And dear God, we are malnourished on the diet of our own sins and the cockroaches of the world. And I want to ask you in this moment to give grace that our friends may admit hunger. And trust you alone to satisfy it in Jesus Christ. Others have been satisfied in him and need to come and become part of Beach Haven. Others need to follow him in baptism. Some you're calling to distribute this bread all over the world in ministry or missionary service. And I want to pray that you'll move in a way that satisfies the soul of your son. God, I want to pray you'll claim every one of us here today to the satisfaction and glory of your Son, even now. In Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen. Would you come? Come. Come on.